talk to everybody. But it's a good Lord's Day. Aren't you glad uh, we got through? you to take your Bible this morning and locate two passages. First of all, in Luke chapter 16, <clears throat> after you find Luke 16, I want you to turn to, um, let's see, where's a good place? Any place is good. Turn to Deuteronomy. Once in the New Testament, once in the Old Testament, Luke chapter 16, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we'll look in those places in just a moment. I want to tell you a little story to kick the message off. We'll start uh, a new series of messages this morning. Uh, when I first began playing football, I think I was eight years old, maybe seven. I think I was eight years old at Terry Heights School. All of my schools are gone. Uh, it's, uh, they tore it down, literally. And then I went to Stone, Stone Junior High School, which is now a brewery. And then I went to Butler High School, and that's a church now, all of my school. And my college is gone. So I don't know what that says about me, but it's all gone. I'm still here. But uh, when I first played football, my dad uh, played football. He actually received a, a football scholarship uh, to, play at, uh, universe, uh, to play at Livingston University, which is just uh, west of Tuscaloosa. And it has another another name. I think it's uh, West Alabama or something like that uh, to play football there. And so I grew up watching football with my father. And so I wanted to kind of have a, a hack at it. <clears throat> so I learned some things that weren't related to football. A couple of them were. One, early on in practice, we would have these, I guess they were blackbirds. You kind of see them over in our part of the town. I don't know about where you live. But those things fly around in the fall, in the late summer. And uh, <clears throat> I watched some of the guys, and uh, I guess it mimics a, a gunshot or something, but they, but they would clap their hands like that, and th- those birds would scatter. And I thought, wow, I've never seen that. And so I kind of got in on the fun. And so guess what I do now in my 60s? If I see those things, I go out and I clap something I learned almost 60 years ago uh, to get those birds off my lawn or in the air. Some bad things happen then. And then I learned about uh, what it means to get the breath knocked out of you. Even even very early on when you think you're going to die, you can't breathe. I guess it has something to do with your diaphragm. But you honestly can't get a breath. And then I remember when uh, <clears throat> I first put on uh, my pads. And uh, I, I remember watching football. And I honestly, Jimmy, I thought that, the, that that was those guys' shoulders. I didn't know they wore pads. I thought, you know, they had a short neck or something. And then they gave the pads. I said, oh, this is, this is why they have that you know, elevated shoulder, and they gave us our shoulder pads and all the other pads. But the best part of it is when they gave us our game jersey. We had, uh, of course, white pants. We had black jerseys. 
with a, a, a white stripe over our shoulder pads, and in the middle was a, was a red stripe. So we had black, white, and red. And man, when the first game came on to put that uniform on, uh, I'll never forget that. But there were two, and this has something to do with the sermon, if, if you're wondering. The two things that had something to do with, with football were my first day of practice when we got up to to run a play when they were teaching us some plays. My stance was all messed up. Um, I got down and, and the coach had to come over there and, and very patiently. And I remember as an adult looking back on that, appreciating the fact that he didn't laugh, he didn't make fun of me, I guess because I wasn't the only one. But he said, no, this is the way you do this. This is a three-point stance, and you put your feet here. And and I remember thinking, oh, there's a strategy to this. You just don't do it any way. There's a purpose for this. And and that was was very meaningful to me. And it's even more as an adult looking back that there was no mockery, but it, it was a teaching time. So got into a game, and they put me at defensive end. And uh, I can't remember who we were playing, but I, I specifically remember we were on about the th- uh, their thirty yard line, and I came up. They they gave the ball to the running back. He was running this way. I took a bad angle, and it wasn't a pursuit angle. That's when you're after someone. It was a bad angle on the running back. <clears throat> he was a lot quicker and faster than I was, and he got around me. I, I didn't hold the edge. And he got around me and faster, and, and I, fortunately, he didn't score, but he got about a 20 or 30-yard run. And then uh, <clears throat> when I got back to the sideline after the series, uh, my coach, in fact, I did his funeral, uh, That um, my coach that, that helped me with this. He was at my mom and dad's wedding, and he began to talk to me and help me. And I, I uh, later, unbelievable, I think about that, these These men that coached me, you know, who would have thought that this little boy that I'm talking to one day, he will do my funeral. I think, wow, uh, just unbelievable. But anyhow, um, he said, now, Rick, he said, when you're playing defensive end, and he didn't use the expression set the edge, but he said, what I want you to do is I want you to force him inside. And he said, don't let him get whatever you do. He, He is not to get outside of you. And I, I had never played defensive end before. And so he said, when you get out there, he said, you, you keep him, everything on the inside of you, and you let them make the tackle. He said, if possible, you push it in, and you may get him, but, but those guys are quicker. He said, you, you push it in and keep everything on the inside. And it made sense to me, and my love of football started then, not when I was knocked out of breath. It wasn't when I got clipped one day and, and I hurt my back real bad. That that wasn't real fun. But it was the science of it. It was that this is not just, you know, a mano a mano out there pushing people around. It's it's there there are certain things that you can do that give you an advantage and it's a mental I, I think it's the ultimate team sport. Uh, because of that and everybody has a role if you don't play your role you mess up everybody else's responsibility Um, the new england patriots have have one sign they have one sign at least when belichick was there he's not there anymore they had one sign in the locker room you know what it was
Do your job. That was it. Do, Paul, did you tell them? That's what you did. I know you did. Yeah. I used to tell my kids this. This is a father, a father's speech. Do your job. Just take care of your responsibility because it's a team role and you have to take care of your responsibility. Now, let me transition here into the message. At the very core of understanding your role in sports and fulfilling that role is what makes a good team. And the same is true of your walk with God. Now, listen carefully. When, when my coach told me that day, he said, don't let anybody get outside of you. you. You force everything inside. It gave me an assignment, but not only gave me an assignment, it gave me an understanding that, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. My role makes sense. It wasn't just, okay, I'll do this, but I don't understand why. And it motivated me because I knew what I was supposed to do. And when you understand the fundamentals, when you understand the basics, when you understand, I'm going to use the word, the core, it changes everything. And so I want to talk to you about, in these messages, about stewardship, because stewardship is a core doctrine in terms of your your walk with God. I believe with all of my heart that the doctrine of stewardship is one of the most important truths in the Christian life. It is a core truth. And when you understand, when you understand what stewardship is, because most Christians do not understand what stewardship is, but that it's core to your relationship with God, how you relate with God, and your roles in the church, then it frees you up and it just makes such a difference. And as I prepared for for this message, this particular message, and I prepared for some other messages as well, uh, along in, in getting ready for this series, my heart was just so blessed, not because I was preaching, but because of the truths, their old truths. But I said, Lord, this this is just this is just so good. This just motivates me to want to do my best for God, and it motivated me to want to. To share this with you. So what is the core? Let's talk about that for a moment. Well, when you talk about the core, when you go to college, they have a core curriculum. It's usually the first semester, sometimes in the second semester. You, you have this basic curriculum that everybody takes. They're usually the 101, 201 courses. And you take those courses. Then uh, they have these, these core workouts for your body, you know, your, your, the core determines uh, the strength of every other part of your body. It's core. And then we, we talk about leadership, that the, in, in an organization, in a church, even in a family, there, there is a core. I remember in one of my youth ministries, I had a, a ministry called CORE, C-O-R-E. It, didn't have, it wasn't an acronym. I just called it CORE. And I didn't have any written anything. I just said, hey, we're going to have a meeting tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, it's called CORE. It's for those that want to make a difference. If you want to come, you come. And I'm, I, if you want to come, you want to be a leader, you come. Because it was, it was foundational and fundamental to the youth ministry. Here's what the dictionary says about CORE. It's that which is central and foundational to a role or to the whole organization. It's core. 
It's essential. It's fundamental. It's foundational. Now, stewardship is foundational to the Christian life. Now, most people, when they think about stewardship, if they've been saved very long, immediately they, they think about money. But that's not stewardship. Now, it includes money, but, but it's, not, it's not about money. Now, I want, I want to show you this in just a moment in Luke chapter 16. But here's what the Lord does in His kindness to us. And that's why it's important that you learn to read the Bible and you learn to understand the Bible. Is that God takes figures of speech, and in these figures of speech, He illustrates truth. And He uses metaphors and similes, like and as. And He uses these other metaphors and pictures to help us to be able to understand truth better. And a steward, stewardship involves stewards. It's an old word that we really don't use very much. But besides being a child of God, I think the most important word is that we're a son or daughter of God. That's God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. And if you're here today and you're saved, you've been born again, you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. But I think right up there, if, if child is one, then 1A is steward. What, what is a steward? Uh, what does that mean? Well, we don't use it often. But bankers and lawyers and attorneys and the courts, they understand it. And in the Old Testament, landowners and farmers understood it uh, very much so. And I think one of the best places to see this, we're just going to read two verses here, and I'm going to give some brief comments and then and get on with some application here. But notice in Luke chapter 16, look at verse 1, Luke 16, 1. Uh, notice what Jesus says, and, and here's what we're going to talk about today. I think you've already seen it on the screen there. Stewardship, the core, the core of the Christian life. I want you to understand stewardship. I want you to understand what it is. We're not going to talk about right now, you know, what, what stewards do. We want to talk to you about what a steward is. Luke 16, 1. And Jesus said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man. So here's the story. Which had a steward. Okay, so here's this man that owns property. And here's this man that works for him. And he's a steward. And the same, that it's the steward, was accused unto the rich man that he had wasted his goods. That is the rich man's goods. So somehow rumor or someone had told him that his steward had wasted his resources. He was not fulfilling his job. So he had a meeting with him, verse 2. And the rich man called his steward. And he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account, now notice this, of thy stewardship. Now, stewards are involved in stewardship. So you can't talk about stewardship until you understand what a steward does. For thou mayest be no longer steward. In other words, you're about to get fired. You're going to lose your job because you have not been a faithful, honest steward. Now, in this context, this steward was responsible for oversight. He did not own anything. 
but he was responsible for, for specific matters. The owner owned the property, but the steward managed the property. So, simply put, stewardship is about relationship and responsibilities. It is about your relationship with God and your responsibilities to God. Simply put, that's what stewardship is about. How I relate to God, what I see myself to God, that God has given me gifts, He's given me resources, and in those resources, He has given me responsibilities. Now, there's three truths to help us understand stewardship, and I just want to give you one today. So, you're going to see the, the number one, and you, you're not going to see another number. I'm going to give you some application to this and some further understanding, but we're going to build on this in the coming weeks, okay? And I've already alluded to it, but let's get to it, okay? Number one, God's role in stewardship. What is God's role? Well, here it is. He is the owner. God is the owner. When, when you think about stewardship, God owns everything. At the core, at the foundation of the Christian life, in the doctrine of stewardship, it is about authority. Now, your flesh is going to kick back with this. You're, you're going to struggle with this, but you and I are under the authority of God. And every problem that I've ever had in my life has been when I got out from under the authority of God. It's when I was not a faithful steward. Now, listen carefully. The issue is not whether or not you are a steward. If you're a Christian, you are a steward. In fact, I'm going to show you in a moment, even if you're not a Christian, you are a steward. The issue is not whether or not you are a steward. The issue is whether you are a good or a bad steward. Because stewardship begins with this presupposition. And, and I want to just give one message to it, that God is the owner. God owns this church, not the pastor, not any leadership. I am, I am an under-shepherd. The word pastor means shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He died for this church. And God owns your life as a Christian. He is the master. He is the sovereign. And I am to submit to Him in every area of my life. Now, when Moses died in Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, he died a premature death. I read it recently. God took him upon a mountain and He showed him the promised land. He didn't get to go in until... Until when Jesus showed forth his glory on the mountain there, and Peter, James, and John were with him, they saw Moses and Elijah, and Moses was there, and he appeared with Christ. He, he got to be in the promised land then, but he didn't get to lead the people in. And he died a premature death. The Bible says that his eyesight was not dim, his strength was not diminished. But God took his life early because he was not a good steward. Because he was not doing what God had told him to do. And so in Deuteronomy 32, 
Moses was appealing to the nation. I want you to stay with me. Because they were not in a good place. And they were in rebellion. And they were about to go into the promised land. This was a new generation. And Joshua's taking over. And he's appealing to them on the basis, listen to them, not on the basis of their being sons of God and Israelites, but on the basis of their stewardship and God's goodness to them. And here's what he says. God has a threefold claim as owner of your life to the nation of Israel. And all three claims are the same claims he has on you and I. I am under the authority of God. You know, I think one of my missions as, as a pastor is to come, come get our people to come to the place. And it's the Holy Spirit's job. I, I preach the Word of God. I cannot do this. I can only give you the truth. Is to get you to be like this, where you are under the authority of the Lordship of Christ under the Word of God. That is one of the tasks that God has given to me. And to do it graciously and sweetly and kindly, but with authority. That you would be a steward. Your life is not your own. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I want you to see this. Notice with me in verse 6. Deuteronomy 32, 6. Now remember, these people are are not right with the Lord. And notice what he says here. Notice the first part of the verse. Moses says, Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? He says, You're you're living like fools. You're, You're not wise. And he rebukes them. Now here's here's what's interesting. If you look here, there, there are three question marks in verse 6. Do, do ye, is not he, hath he not? These are all questions. Someone said one time that an accusation hardens the will, but a question stirs the conscience. And he's rebuking them for their indifference. But he doesn't come out and say, you bunch of idiots. He doesn't do that. He asks them. An accusation hards the will. A question stirs the conscience. When, when I came to this, I thought about in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 with Adam and Eve and Cain that God asked nine questions. Nine questions. Adam, where are you? And then he begins to ask questions in Genesis 3 9, 11, and 13. And then he goes to Cain. He, he knew what, he, it wasn't for information, it was for confession. He was trying to solicit a confession. Cain, where's your brother? Cain, why, why, why are you so angry? Why is your face? And he asked all these questions, nine questions. And one of the wise things that an authority does as a parent, as a boss, or whatever, is to learn to ask questions. Don't come in even if you have the proof. Wielding your big guns, you want to appeal to the conscience. Have you done this? 
And you look at the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the New Testament, how often he did this. But I want you to look at the question. Look at verse 6. Do you thus requite the Lord? The word requite there means to, to serve someone well. God had been good to them. He'd been merciful to them. It means to repay someone because of their goodness. It means to return a favor. Here's what Moses was saying. Are, are you are you you're doing this back to God after all he's done for you? All of that is packed up in the word requite. Is this how you're paying God back? Oh foolish people and unwise. Sometimes I hear people preach and, and they, they get to the words of Jesus and they say, And Jesus did this and And I think about Luke chapter 4, I think it's verse 16. And the Bible says that Jesus spoke graciously. He he didn't speak effeminately, but he spoke graciously. And he was like his father and the Holy Spirit of God. And the picture of the Holy Spirit is a dove. There's much information here. And notice the threefold claim. On Israel, but they're also the claims on us. I want you to notice here, he says, I want you to notice the middle one. He says, hath he not made thee? Has God not made thee? First of all, God owns you, dear brother and sister, by the right of creation. I'm under God's authority because he created me. God owns you By the right of creation. Even if you've never been born again, you are indebted to Him because He gave you the breath of life. He gave you gifts. He gave you a brain to be able to to make money. He is the very source of life and He created you. you. If you never come to the cross... If you claim to be an atheist, God created you. And that's why Moses said, you're living in folly. You're, you're unwise. Has God not made you? And I'm telling you, this, this alone is, is enough to, to bring forth and say, listen, I, I, need, I need to serve him. I need to yield to him. The Hebrew word there in verse 6, made Hath he not made me? Has he not made you? It means to fashion. It means to shape. It means to bring forth, to cause. The same Hebrew word I quoted to you in in the first chapter of Genesis. And God made the firmament. That's the atmosphere. God made it. He created it. God made you in your mother's womb. God created you. The very source of physical life is God. He's the creator of the universe. And so the enemy came up with a doctrine to destroy the doctrine of stewardship. It's called the doctrine of evolution. And when you study those that, especially early on, that came up with the doctrine of evolution, it was 
because of bitterness towards God and towards a parent that was in the ministry that neglected their son. Satan uses the teaching of evolution to remove our sense of accountability of God. We were just here by chance. And intuitively, intuitively, people know that's not right. You have to jump through all kinds of hoops to come to that conclusion. Because we know that God created us. We know that we are here because we are accountable to God. The very first verse in the Bible, almost all monosyllables, not all of them, but almost. It's the simplest verse, but but perhaps the most important verse in the Bible to lay the foundation. It doesn't have redemption in it, but it points to purpose. It points to stewardship. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that verse, we have time, we have space, and we have matter. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, and we have matter. Time, space, and matter. And God created all of these because God is eternal. He is not bound by space. He is not bound by matter. And the rest of the chapter in Genesis chapter 1 and in a fuller way in Genesis chapter 2, in a more complete way, time, space, and matter are, are filled out. And listen, do you know how God fills them out? He does His creation by His words. There is a a doctrine called theistic evolution. I want you to listen carefully. And to accommodate evolution, some Christians came up with something called theistic evolution, which means that God used the process of evolution. And somewhere between Genesis chapter 1-1 and Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, there were Uh, hundreds of millions of years where there was a gap. And in this gap, God used that to explain away certain things. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, when the day-age theory, when, when you get into the days... The word days in Genesis 1 are are 24-hour literal days. Now notice this in Psalm 33 and verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Not by theistic evolution. But by the word of the Lord. He spoke creation into existence. You say, preacher, What kind of material did he have to work with? He had no material. He spoke into existence. How in the world does he think he uses your life? He he takes very little and sometimes nothing. And he uses our lives. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You belong to God because He created you. Now, you're going to have to grapple with that. You either accept it or reject it. 
Some of you have grown up in a system where you've been beaten down with that. And you say, well, I don't want to be considered ignorant. I'd rather be on the minority side with God than on the majority side with the world. When God clearly says that this is His Word. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, Through faith we understand, not sight, not in a lab, not in a test tube, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. This is so simple. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God just spoke into existence. Listen, you belong to God because He created you. I think it's in Ecclesiastes 11.6. He talks about, uh, about the bones... And how they develop in a baby in the womb and how it's a mystery. Doctors can't explain it. They try to. You are here by the miracle of God, by the words of His mouth. I'm indebted to God. Psalm 24 verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the word fullness means all the contents, what made it full, everything that he spoke into existence. Now, we live in a fallen world, and it's beautiful. Imagine what it looked like before sin came in, because the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, the earth became cursed. Now, one day in the millennial reign of Christ, that's a Latin word for 1,000, we will rule and reign with him during that time, and the earth will be restored to, to its Edenic beauty and strength. And the fullness there of the world is the Lord's. And I have this underline, and they, that's us that dwell therein. We're, we are the Lord's. Lost, saved, all races, we belong to God. For He, God, hath founded upon the seas and established it upon the floods. God is the creator, and he created us. Psalm 95 and verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This demands our worship. God created us. Listen, the Bible says through faith we understand. There are some mysteries in life. I was putting some things together for our class on on Bible study, how to study the Bible. And uh, right now we're in a section on on, uh, requirements of Bible study. What is required when you approach the Bible? And one of the mindsets that you have is that there, there are some mysteries. It doesn't mean that God doesn't speak plainly. But God is eternal. Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six, and and you're not going to understand everything. Now later on, you can see some things as you spend time with it, and the Holy Spirit teaches you. But at at the end of the day, and I don't like to say that expression very much, but but in the final analysis, if you can understand someone, you will not worship them. The word worship at the root of it is the word worth. 
He inspires us. He, he causes us to wonder. If you ever go out on a clear night when there's no light pollution and you see all that God is and all that He's done, it inspires wonder. Those of you that have been to Montana and Alaska and other places, you see this. It makes you feel so small. Psalm 100 in verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us. Not we ourselves. We are His people. And the sheep of His pasture. We belong to Him. Christian, you belong to God because He created you. If you're not a Christian this morning, you belong to God because He created you. And then let me show you this text and we'll move on. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, God says. The cattle upon a thousand hills is mine. That doesn't mean he just counts to a thousand. It's the idea of a number that's innumerable. All of them, just like every beast of the field. Verse 11. I know all the fowls. Of the mountains, all of them, all of the birds, the wild beasts of the field are mine. They're all mine. God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Because the world is mine and the fullness. There's that word fullness again. It means all the content. It's all mine. That's a comforting verse. It's not just a theological verse. It okay, everything all belongs to God. God will take care of of you. There's a song we sing uh, about, about this. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We may teach it to you. God gave you the breath of life to serve Him. He gave you gifts. He gave you talents. He gave you a mission. He gave you an assignment. And He wants you to honor Him with your life. Not to squander your life. Not to waste your life. Not, not for you to live as you wish. Are you fulfilling God's assignment for your life? What is God's plan for your life? You may be young. You may be middle life. You may be older. God has a mission for your life. If you're breathing, God has a purpose for you. He created you. God keeps your heart beating. There's a precise mix of oxygen and other gases together. He keeps the earth in a precise distance from the sun so that we don't burn up. He gives us four seasons, not just so that we can enjoy them. He does that, but also for uh, things to be able to reproduce on the earth and, and the plants and so forth. We are indebted to Almighty God for The unique work He has done and is doing. Life is a precious, precious gift. And this is not a message on abortion, but it's why abortion is wrong. Abortion is a sin. Abortion, listen, abortion is wrong because we teach evolution. If you you believe evolution, you accept abortion. Abortion is a sin. Every life is important. No one has no one has the right to take the life of a child. No one. 
Isaiah 43, verse 7, Even everyone, everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God made you. He created you to glorify him. You have a responsibility to honor him. What you did this week, did you honor him? Did you glorify him? The glory of God is a sum total of God's character. And I'm defining this because sometimes we say things and we don't know what they mean. What is the glory of God? It's a sum total of God's character. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to honor Him. It means to exalt Him. And when you glorify God, you, you do not diminish His character. And I'm afraid I do that sometimes. Do you do that? My, my job, one of my main jobs is to, is to honor the Lord with my life because He gave me my life. And my number one mission is to honor Him and to glorify Him. He owns us by the right of creation. Now, I won't spend much time on this, but I want to give it to you. Number two, He owns you by the right of sustenance. The right of sustenance. Not only did God create you, but He provides for you and He cares for you. He sustains you. The word sustenance means to nourish, to feed, to make provision, to replenish. God didn't just create you, He takes care of you. Even if you're not a Christian, God will take care of you. But if you're His child, He has a special provision for you. Notice in your text in Deuteronomy 32, 6, yes, Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not He thy Father that hath bought thee? Hath He not made thee and established thee? Establish thee. The word establish means to to prepare something in, in a very strong and secure way. It's like taking a building and giving it a, a strong foundation so it's sure to stand the storm. It is established. God protects you, He sustains you. And everything, listen, everything in the universe is held together. It's sustained, yes, by the Word of God. By the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, look at this. And in the text in verse 16, you see this. And Jesus is before all things. And by Him, that is Jesus, all things consist. All things consist. Now that's that's a... Unusual Greek word, it's a compound word. It means to hold together. Many studies in, in years, decades gone by, they were trying to figure out what, what holds the atom together and all, all of its complexities. Well, I know what holds the atom together. It's Jesus. This, this world and our planets and stars would veer off course If it were not for Jesus, this is what the Bible teaches. If it were not for Jesus, if our planet or the sun were to veer off course by just a few degrees, we would burn up. 
By Him all things consist. We are sustained by God. Now there is a a belief that's still around. It was more prevalent in yesteryear, hundreds of years ago. It's called deism. D-E-I-S-M. These people believed in God. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Um, He was not an atheist. He was a deist. What is a deist? It's one that believes that God created the world. It's almost like, this is not a good illustration, but one you can see is that God spins a top and then he puts it on a table and he steps back and watches the top spin. There's no intervention. There's no care. There's no concern personally. That's what deism is. But that's not true. He's my father. He's my heavenly father. God is intimately concerned and intimately acquainted with your life. He's counted the number of hairs on your head. The Bible says he, he cares for the pillow that you sleep on at night. The Bible says in the book of Job that he counts your steps. Did you hear me? You don't need... A pedometer to, to, to care for you. God counts your steps. He is able to provide for you. He's able to. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. All your need. Not all your greed. Not all your wants. But whatever you need. This is a verse for Christians. My God will supply according to His riches and glory by Jesus. The word supply there, it's like, you know, Paul and I were driving to church today, and I guess some of the ice in in our neighborhood, they need to fix some of the roads. You know, there's some hollow places, and it's like uh, they need to fix them. And, uh, And they'll come up, and they will fill those hollow places. They will completely fill them up. Or it means to cram a container full till you can't put anything else in there. That's what supply means. It means to meet the need in a complete way. God will take care of you. He provides for the needs of His children. Listen, one of the biggest, most helpful things that ever came my way to know that God is my source. Not my job. Not the government. There was a season, I'll just mention this quickly, when our church went through a very difficult time and they weren't able to to pay us. Sometimes we would get $100, sometimes 150 sometimes we would get $75. And you said, boy, I bet you were just claiming Philippians 419 and smiling. No, we weren't smiling. And we weren't angry, but we were fearful. But you know, I, I learned Philippians 4.19, God, God takes care of His own. God is your source. And sometimes you don't know that. You don't know that God is all you have until you get to the place where you have to know that He's all you need. God is your source. It may not be financial. It may be physical. It may be emotional. God is your source. Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Put God first in His kingdom, in His rule, 
And all these things shall be added unto you. My job is to seek God first in the first part of the day. Have you put God first this week? In your giving, in your time alone with Him. And God says, when you put me first in my kingdom, in my righteousness, and and love me, all these things, what are the things in Matthew 25? It's food, clothing, and shelter. I will take care of you. Now, you may not have the, the car you want. You may not live in the neighborhood you want. But I'll take care of you. I'll meet your needs. God delights to do this. One of my favorite prayer promises, Romans eight thirty two, He that spareth not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Let me just pause right there. When Jesus died, he died for everybody. Don't, don't let anybody tell you that Jesus died for a few. He was delivered up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here's the idea. If he gave his son to be butchered on a cross, won't he give you a bologna sandwich? Won't he pay your utility bill from this cold month when it's higher than usual? Won't he put some gas in your car? Listen, your source is not the church. Your source is not your parents. Your source is God. Psalm 34 and verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are upon their cry. God is attentive unto the cry of the righteous. He hears us cry. He hears us cry. I'm going to stop there today because of time and I don't want to rush the next part of the message. Stewardship is the core, is the core, is the core of the Christian life. And Moses told them, he said, listen, and and he does it in the form of a question, three questions. Do you thus pay God back this way? After he's been so good to you, he created you, he made you, he has established you, he he has sustained you, he owns you, God owns you. As we traverse through these messages and and the whole theme, it will it will change your life, it will change your view of God. It will change your view of your problems, of your resources. God is indebted to take care of His children because you are His son, you are His daughter. But you and I, listen, you and I are indebted to get under His authority. Say, God, you you are my father and you are my owner. And I submit to you. I submit to you. Would you pray with me today? And as we pray, our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I gave you two thoughts this morning on the basis of the fact that God created you and the basis that He is, He has sustained you in the past and He is sustaining you now and He will sustain you in the future. That He owns you. 
right where you sit, would you just acknowledge his ownership in your life and say, Father, you are my master.